Hi, you're listening to Queensland Theatre's Quality Time podcast. This week, our artistic director, Lee Lewis, is joined by an old friend, the accomplished designer, Renee Mulder. Renee has worked in the industry for 12 years and in that time has designed over 40 main stage productions, including Triple X, Boys Follows Universe, and our recently announced upcoming season of Mouthpiece by Kieran Hurley. Directed by Lee Lewis, Mouthpiece will run on the QPAC Playhouse stage from the 31st of October to 14th of November and stars the fabulous Kristen O'Leary and Jaden Popick. You can visit our website for ticket details, but for now, kick back and enjoy a conversation with our designer, Renee Mulder. Hi everyone, my name is Lee Lewis and I am the Artistic Director of Queensland Theatre. Welcome to another session of Quality Time. My very great pleasure to introduce you to Renee Mulder, who I consider the best designer in Australia and that's why we're having the conversation. I'm absolutely <laughs> exploiting her time that she has up here in Queensland uh, to spend a bit of time and talk to her about her process, her life in the theatre, because I find the story behind her work quite extraordinary. And yes, of course, she's a great friend. We've worked together many times. Uh, but she's also quite an asset to the nation in her design process. And I thought that there might be people out there thinking about what it is to actually have a life in the theatre as a designer. And I thought they might be interested in seeing and hearing from one of our great designers, what that life is actually like. It might scare them off, it might scare you off completely. You might decide, no, that's not for me. But, but there's something about the breadth and depth of Renee's understanding of what design is that I thought would be interesting to get her to talk about in this particular time in her life. Uh, I'm going to start with a story that she doesn't really know about, about uh, when she was first introduced to me. We both went to NIDA. And she was there after me and I'd already graduated and uh, the head of design said to me, oh, there's a young designer I want to introduce you to. She's quite wonderful and I think you two would be excellent together. And I was at that particular point resenting his uh, interference, shall we say, in my own process. And I was like, you don't know me. You don't know how I like to work. Another person? Oh, don't be ridiculous. So I actually avoided calling. And then I'm not sure when, I, I'm not sure which play it was, which was the beginning, but your name back. came up and I remember going, oh, that was who Peter Cook recommended. Oh, well, we may as well meet. And, you know, more full me, because from the very first conversation, I went, oh, damn, he's right. And I should have just talked to her two years ago. <laughs> uh, and since then, and sometimes there's just a click, a click with someone where you kind of go, yeah, this, this conversation will work. And in that in that first conversation, and yeah, I can't even remember what, what show it was for. I just knew that we would always work together. And that was the beginning. But so I apologise for the two <laughs> years where I didn't call you, where you were... <laughs> no idea. <laughs> but I do remember that thing. Some, someone had that thought that we would work together well. And I don't know what, what he thought about that, like where that thought came from. But he was absolutely right. So Peter Cook, wherever you are, thank <laughs> you. Uh, and I'm sorry I ignored your advice, just in that particular situation. <laughs> So, Renee, um, the strangest of this conversation is that when I was thinking back, I'd have to go back to my actual records and figure out when we started working together. But what 
what I found in the conversation with you is that, uh, and your work, because I think of you and your work as one big thought. And I know we don't spend a lot of time outside of work, uh, but I feel like every time I go and see a play that you design, I'm a part of your work as well, in a funny way. Like, I, 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 I'm part of the conversation with you because it is a conversation over a lifetime. Absolutely. It turns out. Absolutely. <laughs> turns out. You know, I think you're very, very lucky to find people you want to keep working with repeatedly. Uh, and it's not always possible. Yeah. Um, but you've, you've got that experience with a number of directors. And I have this conversation with a number of directors around the country where I kind of go, oh, Renee, and they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and we fight over you. We do. <laughs> oh, so you're known to be someone who works repeatedly with directors over time. So, what is, so given that we all strong arm you into doing different projects, Renee, can you do this one? And you kind of go, oh, but I'll be overlapping with this. And we go, please, and we beg, and because you're lovely, you'll say yes. Um, what is it, what is your relationship to the work as opposed to the, the people who you work with, like the plays that you actually look at? The relationship to the work. Yeah. It's so tricky because for me, it always starts with the relationship that I have with the people I'm working with. That's how I get introduced to the work. So to take that first step of the relationship away and actually just look at the, the words in front of me, the text, it, it feels like, well, yeah, you, I, have to, I have to be moved by it in some way. I have to feel like, I, a, like a response, a, an initial response has to come from me, just a feeling or something a visual sense inside my mind thinking it could be a shape or a colour or something like that, something quite abstract maybe initially. But, um, or just then the need to then go back to the director that I'm working with and actually have a conversation about it, you know. Like it's, it's, it's it, the work for me is like a motivator. Do you get that thing, because I get this as a, as a freelance director, when uh, someone in the company says, how about this play? And my heart sinks and I kind of go, I hope I like it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> like it. absolutely. Yeah. And it feels like sometimes, sometimes I need to read the play a few times. The first time might not be mm -hmm. fireworks. It might, it, it still might be a few times before I go. Oh, now I see what the motivation was to you know put something like this on. Or you know, sometimes I've had no discussion with the director before reading a work. It's just like have a read, see what you think, come back to me. And so it's like it's almost like a test, like. <laughs> <laughs> now this is like a really bad play and we're just going to give it to you and see what you think or, you know, and then to try and give some honest feedback. Depending if it's a new work or an old work, it, it, it all depends on, on that as well. And this is an interesting thing. Um, looking at, thinking about the body of your work, I would look at it and I would kind of go, the thing that interests me about you as a designer is that I can't pick your style. Oh, really? Which is a really interesting oh. thing, as opposed to you having a style or a stamp where I go, that's a Renee Mulder show, that you transform your work to fit the actual material, which I think is probably why so many directors like working with you, in that you do, your work does transform. So is that, has that been something conscious? Was that a conscious choice in your working process? Initially not, but then I don't know. I think it was obviously through the, my experience of just the, the work that I did start to get. Um, initially, yeah, then, then it started to turn into, okay, take, take your aesthetics. Well, your, your aesthetics are always there with it, but the idea to try and, it's all about, for me, it's all about honouring the work and to be able to support 
um, the, the 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 cast and the director in their vision as well. But just to, I don't know, not to be invisible, but just to like I always feel like in a review, if I'm not mentioned, I've done a really good job. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. because it's not, it's not, it doesn't jump out. It's not a, it's not a big, you know. And yet, and yet, sometimes thing. you make extraordinary choices that leap out but don't seem to dominate the production. I remember the, the, one, of the, one of my favourite moments of your work was that uh, the rose wall. Oh, and Mrs Warren's, Mrs. Warren's profession. profession. There was this, it was in Wharf One. Mm. Am I remembering yeah, properly? Yeah. It was in uh, Wharf One and there was this extraordinary wall covered with pink roses, which seems like a hugely dominant idea and yet it was just the perfect backdrop for a story and it kept a softness in the work which humanised it to a large extent. Um, so that's not what I would call disappearing into the background as a designer. <laughs> uh, like similarly, the scale of the, sty- the style has, I've watched over the years, been dictated by the material that yes. you've had. Arguably like one of the most extraordinary designs that you've done that have, been, have, have really excited people is the Beauty Queen of Lanan. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, on some level, just a, a, a naturalistic set, really, but creating the reality of that horrible little house tucked into the side of the hills somewhere in Ireland, it was, it, it was truly awful and very beautiful at the same time. And I remember as people were coming into the space and the way people were talking about it, they were like, oh, yeah, right. Uh, it had an impact in and of itself and it told the story of landscape and the oppressive nature of the isolation. And that would not have existed in the play without all of the work and the design. Now, I looked at it and I also went, oh, that's a lot of money sitting on the stage. Because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's true, isn't it? The, like the, something that seems like the most natural of spaces can, can be the most expensive of makes. Absolutely, absolutely. It's deceiving. It's so deceiving. And also a deceptively simple concept can also cost a huge amount of money. And it, it was really all down to um, really resourceful um, production teams on that show to be able to actually um, recycle materials that we were finding from um, other places within the Fox Studios that STC were rehearsing in um, that we were able to aff- actually afford that set in general. It was extraordinary. So you have to imagine, uh, if you didn't get to see it, uh, walking into the Rosenpacker Theatre and there was the, a house on the side of a mountain in the rain, mist, and it was, it was bleak and awful. But then this amazing thing happened. It revolved. So they were able to walk up the hill and around and come into the house. So it was, it was kind of an extraordinary moment of, uh, and a management of that play that opened, up the, that opened up the idea of the work, not just to the house but to the loneliness of the landscape around it, that turning space gave yeah. it a, a breadth, if you like, or an actual geography that, that yes. it wouldn't have had if it didn't do that. Yeah, and that's exactly the starting point that Paige, the direct, Paige Rattray, yeah. the director, and I sort of began with. We, were, we, sort of, we were talking about isolation a lot because that was like, um, like one of the themes within like cracking, cracking the play open and talking about isolation within the landscape. They were so remote from anything and I have else. And se- I have seen it before where mm. it's just been the house yeah, and, yeah. you know, like that's how mostly people see the play. And on some level there's a danger in that play of it becoming cosy. Yeah, yeah. But what the revolve out to the out, that outside space, when it was, yes, it was a shelter from an oppressive landscape, but it was lonely. Exactly, and just as oppressive inside as yeah. well. 
and the idea of being able to push the push the house as close as we possibly could to the front of the stage as well, because we were in a quite a big, quite a large venue, the Rosalind Packer um, Theatre. Um, essentially, you know, and most of the scenes in the play were only like two, three handers. So you, we kind of wanted, we still wanted a sense of intimacy as well, which is also tricky to do in really large spaces. So it was really about just isolating. I guess it comes down to the practical, the practicalities of of what is required to support the, the cast and support the text. And it's sort of putting those pieces together, I guess, is sort of the formula, the formula, I guess, of, of the way I started design. Have you found that your process has changed over the years? Absolutely. And it changes, it also changes with, um, with whoever I'm working with as well. So uh, depending on the director that I'm working with, it'll depend on the process. I guess why, we, well, why I enjoy working with the same people is that you start to form a shorthand, a really, you know, very well, shorthand language. You and, I know, you and I know this quite well. I, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. There have been a couple of times where we've actually done something very quickly because we've both been very busy. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we've had a deadline coming up and we've both been working on other things. We've had literally like a half-hour meeting. We've gone, how about this? Yeah, mm, uh, yeah, okay, we're good. Yeah, I, and she goes, how about this? And I go, yeah, I can direct on that. And we're like, okay. Lock and that's pretty much it, lock it in. And she, we both get this petrified look on our face of like, is that okay? Is that sort of work? half guilty. Can we do something that quickly? But that's years <laughs> and years of conversations and, right. and also years and years of relationship with the spaces that we've been working in as well. Absolutely. So that's only possible when we both know the space. Absolutely. And, uh, and then the relationship allows us to leap over a lot of the preliminary conversations. I mean, I I go back to, I go back to Bleeding Tree, which had quite a long genesis, (laughs) but at one point at the very beginning, I think they were wading around in water, weren't they? Until, you know, um, halfway through that conversation, we went, oh no, middle of winter, can't do that. Okay, next. So we had, like, sometimes it takes a long time. That's right. But but then the solution, the end, the end, the end point of that meeting, I distinctly remember you, you had a piece of paper and I remember you just crumpled it up and put it in the corner of the water box and went, yeah, it's like, it's like something that. And then we both walked away and went, yeah, yeah. totally, and that's then, great. So Renee then <laughs> takes my piece of crumpled up paper in the corner and comes back with this extraordinarily pleated landscape that was vertiginous and scary and covered in this beautiful uh, wallpaper like 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 fabric, fabric. Yeah. Uh, of roses. So it was a very feminine space with a lot of sharp edges and it was a double rake so it was actually quite, it wasn't unsafe. But the number of people that contacted us to say, are those actors safe? Because it looked unsafe. It wasn't. And they really weren't near the edge of anything. But it looked perilous. And it was a fascinating impression that was created. And I always feel guilty about that because of that. You, you had to go away and look at that crushed up piece of paper and kind of go, how do I turn that into a design? <laughs> yeah, sure. Thanks, Lee. <laughs> but, Squishing but, it around. You know, jiggle it around, do some stuff. And, and ultimately, of course, it's one thing to screw up a piece of paper. And it's another thing to actually have to construct that out of actual building materials in a way that's safe for people to work on and all of those things and can be built with the ridiculously small budgets that we have here because a lot of a a lot of our theatre making here is completely under budgeted on a on a design level and so a lot of the invention of being an Australian designer is being able to do a lot with a lot not a lot of money and I look at the budgets that are you know in American theatre and English theatre and you kind of go the one of the reasons we've there's an I suppose an Australian style of design is lack of money Mm, in materials yeah Completely. Yeah. Completely. Yeah, you're, you're kind of, it's just a different way of thinking. 
I guess when it you don't. It always has to be a solve, doesn't always it? Always has to be a solve. And yeah. the, the, the dollar is the bottom line and can overtake uh, design decisions ultimately as well. Or it, it totally steers you in the, well, for me, it steers me in the direction of, of where Because that's part of your job to too, isn't it? Is yeah. actually to bring in an idea according to the budget that, Absolutely. that's allocated for that particular play. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And so therefore the, yeah, the tighter that budget is, the, the more creative, weirdly, you kind of have to be. Well, you don't have a choice, really, do you? <laughs> no. But then I suppose that's always, that's been a, a feature of, I suppose, leaps in understanding of what Australian design is. I think that was part of the original, uh, when, the, when Les Mis had its Australian production. Mm-hmm. I, I seem to remember there was a story about the, way, the fact that the Australian version didn't have all the machinery that, had, that the original production did. And I think they put it on on wheels and in segments, and it was you know like so it was a wood. fragmented it was version. a fragmented version. Yeah, yeah, right. And uh, and then that actually became the version the of the play because That's Australia couldn't afford to do the yeah. original design, had to figure out a different version, and then ultimately that suited the telling more in the long term future of the play. Mm, mm. So I suppose there's that. I think there's also I would call a little bit of a little bit of Neil Armfield aesthetic, and I don't know who was the underpinning designer in, in that whole process, but put the table on wheels and you can transform your spaces. You know, and I grew up watching that kind of theatre. So that has always been the kind of space that we've had, but I know mm. it's quite, it's quite um, radical from, say, an American design point of view. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is, I guess. It is. It's, it's an, it's a, I guess you'd call it an Australian aesthetic. Well, it's, it is interesting. We don't... Um, no, I, I think it is. I think it is, and I think we're just at the beginning of really starting to talk about an Australian aesthetic mm. and that an, a, an Australian way of making theatre. Mm. And you know, it's, I suppose we're only about fifty years deep in Australian process, if you like, yeah. uh, to be able to start to analyse trends and patterns over years. But yeah, there is something about the lack of money, Big forcing time. an inventiveness, Big time. and also training an audience to look at spaces in more imaginative ways as well. That's right, that's right. And, uh, not, and not treating the audience, not spoon-feeding the audience, actually giving the audience enough room to, you know, put things together themselves, uh, have an imaginative kind of um, engagement in, in what they're looking at on stage as well. Yeah. Take me back, take me back mm. to how you, how you found your way to theatre design because it's not an obvious decision. I mean, it's not, but I think it was something I always wanted to do. I, I loved, I remember in high school just being really into, you know, the drama and the acting and the dance and, and what have you, but I was also really into the art and design side of, of subjects as well. And it was like, well, I don't think I'm, I can't really do, sta- I can't really be on the stage, but I think I can be behind the stage and sort of join those two sort of like interests together. And then when I started to learn that, oh, people actually do this for a living, I was like, well, this, this is really interesting. This is really exciting. But also knowing and, and, then, and then learning about a place called NIDA and going, okay, well, maybe I'll want to go there then. And this was kind of after graduating high school. And then at the time, the kind of uh, sort of, recommendations, I guess, to going into a place like NIDA was that mature-age students are pro- is probably more beneficial for, for slightly older students or people that have actually had a life and have studied something else prior. So I decided to do interior design and uh, studied that as a bachelor degree for three years up here in Brisbane. At Griff- like yeah, at Griffith Uni. Um, and that, uh, that was kind of, well, that was also great. 
um, because it gave me a really great background, I guess, into sort of like the history of architecture and structure and that sort of that sort of thing. So nothing was wasted, I guess, in that in that regard. And sort of worked at that for a little while, and then applied for NIDA and was accepted into that. And then realised that you know costume is also really interesting and fascinating. And so yeah, it's just I guess it sort of just flowed on from NIDA. And from there, I was like, okay, well, we've graduated now. Here we go out into the world. And what was your first show out in the world? I think it was the Herbal Bed which was at the New Theatre in Newtown, directed by Sarah Giles. Oh, my gosh. A total yeah, co-op. Right. <laughs> total co-op. So there was no money. No one was getting paid for it. But there is a workshop there. There is a workshop there. But what I decided to do was to test take, because like half of the theatre was storage for their, all their flats. <laughs> and I went, oh, no, let's just take everything out. So we took, it, we took everything out. They, they did a massive spring clean of their whole stage, which actually opened up the stage space even more. And everyone's like whoa, I've never seen a theatre like that before. And so I was like, we've just emptied the theatre. Like, this is the, now the set, isn't it? It's great. <laughs> Put some lines on the floor, stylized the, what the cast were wearing. Like, everyone was in, like, versions of monochromatic black and what have you. It was very austere, very kind of um, Puritan and that sort of thing. Yeah, and it was like, oh, yeah, there's a show. But, again, really, yeah, it, like, I look at it now and go... Yeah, but it's nah. funny, isn't it? You go from NIDA where you're... <laughs> you're encouraged to think in huge vision and huge architectural space and and have ideas that are kind of physically impossible to make. And then you get out and there's no money and it's the new theatre and you're like, well, what have we got? We could stick, we could just clear out and have the walls of the theatre and put some lines on the floor and that's about as much money as we've got. And then you kind of see the power in that too. Totally, totally. Yeah. It's kind of a reality check initially really getting out mm. because night is that place where, you know, You've got the workshops. You've got the you've got the other people that you've got the other departments that can, that can support your vision to put that on. But when it just comes down to, well, you are the costume maker and you are the set builder and all that sort of stuff. It's sort of you know then I guess your aesthetic my aesthetic might have been honed by what I was <laughs> capable of doing myself. <laughs> there is that though. You do it in and in the early like it never goes away though. You're actually needing to keep your hands on the process. Yeah, yeah. From my point of view, it's always interesting to me who's still got their hands on the process, mm. who still kind of look, works through a rack of, of clothes and kind of goes and, and your hand moves towards the colour or the, the texture and you need to be, have your hands actually on it. It's mm. an interesting, mm. it's an interesting Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Do you still find yourself very hands-on? Um, yes. I mean, probably, probably less and less now, but it also depends on what I'm doing. And what 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 um what what production? Too. When you're working for Griffin, yes, very. When I'm working for Griffin, I'm totally there. <laughs> when I'm working for Griffin, like we're putting paint on the walls, and you know, <laughs> I think I've painted with you. Yes, you have. I think you have. <laughs> um, but if it's if uh, where it's where if it's at STC, I'll be I'll definitely be involved in the um, conversations about colour and sampling and process. You know, for example, with the scenic art department, but I tend not to muck in with them necessarily. I mean, although when, when once bumping comes, I am pretty hands-on. Well, it's off. I mean, yeah. there isn't a company in this country that is over-resourced insofar as mm. people and labour. Mm. Everybody's stripped pretty bare. Yeah. And so often with the big works, it's yeah. all hands on deck to it's get it done on. in the time that we have. That's yeah. it, that's it. So, yeah, yeah when once bumping comes, it's, yeah, my turn to sort of start fiddling and getting involved with, yeah, anything that's going on on the set. It's interesting that question, that thing about interior design, because I suppose, uh, and this interestingly hasn't been my experience, but 
uh, people have talked about women in design internationally, mm. that women tend to be more in the costume design roles mm. rather than the set design roles. And, and again, that hasn't been my experience. So generationally, I think it's shifting. Definitely. But that traditionally has been a dividing line. Has, Absolutely. It, has that been your experience or were you, did you feel any pressure towards the costume space or did your sort of architectural interior design beginning give you the... I feel like that might have given me the, um, not necessarily the head start, but just a, a little bit more of a slightly more weighted towards uh, spaces. A special confidence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, even though I loved costume as well. Um, interesting. I don't think I've ever done, I'm trying to think also it's, it's quite common as a designer in Australia to be called on to do both set and costumes for most shows, which I, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like one of my favorite things because I think, I guess I think I'm a control freak as well. I mean, the, the idea that you, you get to, you get to have that continuity across, across everything in the world. I mean, it is also fun to do, um, to split the role and share it with another designer, which also means you're not, you're not working by yourself in that, in that, in that capacity. And you, you've always also got someone else to bounce off, which is also great. And it also means, and this is usually on the largest scale shows when they do separate those roles. So they don't come along very often. Um, but also working separately like that, I don't think I've ever just, um, just been working on a set design. I've always been the costume designer of that or in that yeah. scenario, which is interesting. It is interesting. Um, but yes, I think that also then if you have the opportunity to just do one side of it, you tend to really get into the detail and really kind of relish in how focused you can make um, your side of things. Whereas if you're if you're spread out across both uh, both areas, you're your brushstrokes are slightly a bit broader and, you you know, I feel like, I, f I feel like it is, I feel like I can get right down to like, you know, the nitty gritty of an accessory or, you know, that sort of thing, whereas in, um, it's just, yeah, it's just, it just feels, I can just get slightly more detailed if I'm just focusing on the one side. Yeah, that's interesting because I kind of, there's also the advantage when you're doing both and mm. I've watched this happen where you the whole worldness of it is quite extraordinary. I remember being blown away. I didn't know you'd done it, but I was blown away by the design for a play called Home, I'm Darling, which I happened mm. to see by accident. I happened, it was in Melbourne. I had one night. I was like, oh, what's on? Okay. I went in. I hadn't read about the play. I didn't know anything. Sat there and went, wow. <laughs> like the design was blow your mind great. But across the whole layer, and it, it was a, a double-story house that was uh, outfitted to be a 1950s house and it, uh, and a couple, the story of the play is that the couple live in a, a fantasy 1950s because they've decided that would be the best way to live and they're not, they're, they're a contemporary couple in denial about their reality. So it's actually, it's a comedy about how we run away from the world that we're afraid of and, and how we create these little bubbles um, to protect ourselves. But it was this beautiful 1950s like, design and I would say the play was slightly satirical, but what I loved is that the design was not. You could maybe find an edge of satire in it. It was so subtle it didn't betray the, the beauty of the play and the beauty of the fantasy. And I kind of go, I don't know if that would have been possible uh, if you'd split the roles because the, I tell you, the, the wallpaper <laughs> was so beautifully counterpointed to a couple of those costumes, and you kind of go, that was... so at the, at, Totally intentional. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like at the end where I was like, because of course I don't pick up a program or anything like that, and I'm sitting there going, who 
did this. I'm going through my head going, who could have done this? Because the, <laughs> the detail was so extraordinary. And, and it was actually kind of a relief when I found out it was you. <laughs> you like, oh, that makes sense. You know, that absolutely oh, makes right. sense. But there were some things in there and I kind of go, I, I, I suppose it goes back to that question of what builds over time. There were a couple of tricks in that design that allowed for, again, our Australian expectation. We don't, we don't tolerate long transitions in Australia. No, no. We expect things to move really quickly, but that's we don't right. spend the American money in doing those fast transitions. That's right. That's so we've right. got to find tricks. And now I, I was fascinated. There were, there were wall panels that pulled away just to allow quick entrances in ways that you wouldn't expect. Now, would you have thought of doing that years ago? Mm. Possibly not. Possibly not. I think it's from it's it's from experiencing doing shows where, you know, you learn by doing. Well, I feel like that's what yeah. I've done. I've just learned by doing. Like, it's a show that has like massive quick changes in it. Um, like a full garment, even if it's a blouse and skirt, needs to be completely connected and a single zip down the back, and so it's step in and out. You know, ev- all, everything's attached to it. It's it's one it's one garment. Then it turns into one element that this that, that this actor has to then work with. And as far as um, architecturally being able to like sc- scoot in and out of these spaces, that solid seeming walls where we can't see the cuts in the wall to be able to go. Oh, there's a fake door in there, or there's a <laughs> sneaky entrance. So like, don't look too closely. <laughs> no, I know. But again, that thing of knowledge of what you can pull off in a proscenium. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It, it all depends. It depends on the venue. It depends on the relationship of the audience to the set and to the space and to the actors. Um, and I guess every project is different in that respect. So you, you're always trying to, you're, you're always coming at it from a different angle when you're, when you're now, it's putting something together. You, you talk about yourself as a control freak, but, and it, which is a lovely admission. Yeah. <laughs> but I have to say you never come across as one. Oh, that's good. Uh, so that just makes me go, you're really sneaky. Well, because it's because it is that thing you do you as a designer you're actually in a very intimate relationship with all of the all of the actors. You're the person in the room with them as they are trying on their characters, if you mm. like, with costume. Mm. And it's it can be a very precarious space. You've got the the psychological space of the actor reshaping themselves into a different human, bringing with them all of their fears and worries about their performance. Their, all of their insecurities about physical appearance and their dreams about how they would like it to be. And you sit in that space. I, as a director, I very consciously don't go into that space because they need that time away from my interference. But you sit entirely in there. What is that space like for you? Collaborative. And I know, yeah. yes, okay, I have said control freak, but it's control freak within boundaries, within parameters, within limits always because it's not just my creation, it's the creation of the other people also working on the show. And an actor will come with a complete, sometimes come with a completely different vision of what their character is. And so we have a conversation about it and I talk about my ideas and decisions and I justify them and then they come to me with their take on something which is just as, just as justified and just as important. And they're the ones that are living with this character night in, night out. They're the ones who are ultimately telling the story and Again, it feels like it is my job to support them. So sometimes what I have come up with will be completely not the right take and it'll be a complete readjustment with, with obviously the director in tow as well with the, with the actor. Um, other times actors come in completely open to just dress me. You, I, I will totally work with whatever you give me and that's also amazing and fun. 
um, and sometimes it's a bit of both. So well, I, sometimes because you're in this conduit space, aren't you? Because we've had a lot. Say, mm, we've had a lot mm, of conversations. I've mm, kind of got, and we kind of go, "That's what it is." And then you walk into that space and you start absorbing all of what comes from the actor, and often then you're the conduit for them back to me as you go, "Well, maybe this," and so it, it starts to bend. But that's you right. sit in that sit in that space. How has has that space changed? Have you seen that space change over the last? How, how long have you been designing now? To say how, how many years? I've um, lost sense of time. Just over ten, like 10, 11, could even be 12 years maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Has, and has, your, has that space changed culturally definitely, speaking? Definitely, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's always, uh, I always feel like it's, it starts with a conversation now. Like, yeah. And it always kind of did, but it, with, with the actor. It always sort of did, but it was very much more of this is what it is, you know, try this on. But it's, it's way more than that. It's, 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 yeah, I feel like it's, it's a total collaboration really. Um, and it's, it's giving the actor um, a little bit of time to process what they're putting on as well. And we, ha- we have, it's, 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 yeah, again, everyone's different too. So uh, every fitting experience will be different, but also because of the show as well and what's required. Like some actors need a lot of, um, like a, basically a bodysuit where, you know, they've got like a tummy or fake boobs or, you know, a hunchback or, you know, there'll be all prosthetics will be involved. So there's or a whole like undergarment that. There'll be a whole under, a shape. undershape. And so that that is even before any clothes get put on. And then you have to start right down at the, bo- at the bottom, like at the basics of that. Um but it also goes to um, hair and wigs and any kind of appliances on the face or blood or any, you know, anything. It's, it's always, yeah, it's, it's a conversation and, and haircuts. And, and then the larger so the space, often now it's microphones as well. Exactly. So you're dealing with, yeah, exactly. this completely felt and slinky figure, where's the mic pack Where do we have the mic pack? Exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, and all the different tapes to tape the, the mics it. in and all of that sort of stuff. Exactly, so. exactly. So it does get very intimate. It can get very intimate with the mm. actor. But, again, it's, it's, it's a safe space and it's a space where um, it's always, you know, checking in. Can Excuse me, can I just reach out and take that? Or, you know, some actors are completely comfortable, but you also give everyone the time to change, the time to, you know, for themselves to be in front of the mirror on their own for a little while. But then you're also navigating, that's always happening through the course of rehearsal of where course. there's time pressure and so you're going... I need three hours with this person for them to be comfortable. That's and you've right. got a director going, she can't have it for three hours. What are you talking about? That's right. That's right. So and then the stage manager comes to you and says, Renee. Yes. I'm always like, I'm trying to buy time all the time. Just and going, oh, just another 10 minutes. They're just 10 minutes away, surely. And then 10 minutes might turn into like half an hour. I really try not to go over time, but sometimes so things like that. Have you found that that's been what actually an evolving career is, understanding that conversation more and more? Absolutely. So that you can manage that more and more? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Are there any things that you look back on and go, Oh God! I would have like. I suppose always. the regret basket. There, is there a big regret basket? Oh, I always think. Well, I don't know. I look at. I, I look at a lot of work that I do. Like, I don't know if I'm ever happy. That's the thing. Even when something's on and up, and I look at it and I'm like, mm. and I'm pulling. I'm still pulling stuff apart, and I always have to walk away and step away from it and go. You're too close to it. You can't. You know. Not everyone can see what you're looking at or I'm just getting fixated on something that I haven't been able to achieve or I haven't been able to fix. But not that anyone else would necessarily know that, probably apart from the director or the production manager or something like that. But um, 
regret basket. I don't know. I don't know if I have anything specifically or in particular. I had one. Oh. Uh, I did a show. At, I did a show at night. I'd already graduated. I came back and did a big show, and it was a great leap of faith on their part. It was a big, big play. It was in the parade. It was a. It was a last minute thing. They mm. had a, another show fall over. Could you come in and do this huge thing for fifteen people? Yes, of course I can do that. Yes, of course I can do that. <laughs> and I never got the ending. I really didn't uh, know what the ending was. And six months later, I woke up and I went, that's how I should have done the ending. Yeah. And it wasn't bad. That happened. But I kind of go, oh, there's the idea. And I've had a couple of those where I've gone, oh, that would have actually been a much stronger idea. Yeah, that sometimes that happens happen? to me. Absolutely. That sometimes happens to me um, while I'm watching the show. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I'll be watching it like a final preview or something and I've seen the show like five times. And then I sit there and I'm like, oh, right, didn't get that. Now it's all of a sudden it's clicked that it's the way that I've been watching it or where I've been sitting or something's happened and all of a sudden, and maybe it's just this subconscious thing that's been churning over and over and over and you're like, oh, that would have been, actually, that would have been a great idea. Yeah. And it's hard, (laughs) isn't it? It's hard, isn't it? You sit there and you sometimes just have to live with, and they're not bad choices, it's just not, you couldn't see the, you couldn't see the great moment until you see it. Exactly. And as I exactly. It's an interesting thing, isn't yeah. it? A patience over time yeah. with yourself to kind of go, sometimes you can see the great mo- moment ahead of time and other times you're just not. That's it. That's it. And I've also started, I guess, to learn when to stop. Like, you know, mm-hmm. in the ideas process of something, you can keep churning through and keep questioning things and uh, screwing it up, going back to the drawing board, starting again. And sometimes that muddies things a bit. And I've had that where I've, I've, I've done a design and then we've presented something. Um, this is in other examples and presented something and it, it just hasn't come through and it doesn't work. And so it's ultimately been a redesign at that point, which is like, well, yeah, that's why. And then we initially, we always end up going to back to the first idea anyway. So it's about trusting your instincts as well, I guess. That's and learning to, to be, yeah, learning to trust the, yourself. Sometimes the first idea is the idea, but there's always that disconcerting moment where you kind yeah, of go, it really? Like I that. haven't worked hard enough. Yeah, it can't <laughs> be like that. Yeah. 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 But sometimes, again, it's that thing, the first idea can be that when you know the space, when you know the people. Exactly. Sometimes it is luck. Yeah. You exactly. land on it. Exactly. You know? And then it's interesting, is it? Like I, we had a, an interesting process that on that bleeding tree space mm. because there was the first production of it, which was at Griffin, which was in a tiny space, uh, and very vertiginous, and the audience was sitting down low to it, and so, and it was quite claustrophobic. But then, it was picked up uh, and taken over to the Sydney Theatre Company in Wharf One, where there is no claustrophobia in there. No. And no. what you did with that design was transform it into an isolation space. Suddenly, we had a landscape, same, essentially same idea behind the design, still a, a pleated kind of skirt-like landscape, but they felt very much alone in that rather mm. than in a pressure cooker. Mm, mm. And then, of course, <laughs> a year later, it decided to go on tour. <laughs> and so you had to remake it in a way that could be put together and, and transported easily, or relatively easily yeah, around the country. Yeah. So that was an interesting one to keep coming back to. Uh, and again, with the lighting designer, Verity Hansen, to actually keep coming back to it and going, you know, how do we, how do we re- keep recapturing that experience that people had at Griffin, which was, had such an impression and left such an impression on people, how do we keep recapturing that for the play to work? And it was just it was subtle, wasn't it? It was subtle, but I was also kind of surprised as to how many times we, you, could, you, could, you could 
change that shape or, or, to, or, or to still try and give the essence of, of the same kind of quality or feeling, I was quite surprised that we that it we was, pulled it that off. It was possible, yeah. yeah. I, initially, like that's going into the wharf one at the STC. I was like, yeah, nah, we can't do <laughs> we that. Can't. <laughs> and then this other thing happened. We yeah. figured out. We figured out. Well, you figured out how to make it work in there. But also, what it. it it made me discover was that I mean, the, the wharf one space was in the thrust configuration mm. Mm. and it made me realise that the floor space was not actually that much bigger than Griffin and that was an, an amazing thing in that relationship between them. The primary new work spaces in the city is that actually the Griffin space was quite architecturally connected to wharf one and to Belvoir. I'd always known about the Belvoir one because of the corner, the corner yeah. but actually when it came to floor space... Uh, that wharf one space is very connected. Now, of course, that space is going to change. Absolutely. It's been changed into a completely different theatre. And are you looking? Are you in conversations about works to go in there in the new space? Still very early days, especially yeah. in the time that we're in sure. right now. Um, but it's but it's it's kind of quite exciting to see a new space. It sort of it sort of um, it sort of wipes the slate clean. Insofar, well, insofar as audience memory, that's often it. when you've got a, a space that. Well, like, the, like what the Wolf One space was mm. and Griffin and Belvoir, you've got, you know, up to 50 years of people walking up a particular set of stairs and, and sitting in the space. And part of the job as a designer is to make surprise them every time, right? Every time they come in, they've got to go, wow, how does this mm. happen? Mm. But a, a clean slate. It's kind of not unlike the Bill Brown, which we're sitting in at the moment. Uh, it's only about four or five shows deep in audience memory. Mm. Mm. So all of the things that you can do in the space haven't been done. Is that exciting as a designer? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had the privilege to design the first show in this space. Which was Near the Gods. Which was Near yeah. the Gods. And at that time, it was early discussions with Sam sort of saying, well, the audience haven't even really seen this theatre yet. And basically that in itself, just the essential architecture of the space, is it in itself part of the play? Then, part yeah? of the play, and, yeah. and a space that we can use. Yeah. And so that was the springboard for where that kind of, or part of where what that was conversation. Was that like watching the first audiences walk in here? It was really interesting. It was really interesting. It was everyone kind of, um, yeah, just looking around and trying, just <laughs> taking taking it all in. And you know, it was it was great. Yeah, it was it was. Um, Everyone's sort of navigating how to get into the space I always find interesting. And uh, it, it is a lot of um, sort of foot traffic, like obviously uh, what's people, the path? Where, where, what's the path, where to navigate, where to go. Yeah, yeah. so that, that always takes a little bit of time. designers that have that experience, but they're putting the first play into a new no, theatre. No, no, I don't think so. No, so it's pretty, that's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> um, what do you, what do you think is going to be the first one in the, wolf, in the new Wolf 1? Gosh, I wouldn't even have a clue. Wouldn't know. I, I, and that's the thing. I think, I think we've still got, I think there are still two, two venues in that space too. So still Wolf 1, a Wolf 1 and a Wolf, 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 wolf two. 2. But the rumour is they're going to be able to be brought together into Correct. one big space, It's right? going to be like a oh, Super Wolf. Super Wolf. Oh, the Super Wolf. That is I awesome. I don't know what it's called. We're totally going to call it that. The Super Wolf. <laughs> So that'll then mean it's like, I think at the moment there's flexible seating arrangements. So uh, it gives uh, designers and directors the opportunity to literally change the space as to where audience will be sitting. So whether it's theatre in the round, whether it's a traverse. Um, but I also think that it could be a very simple end-on configuration mm -hmm. too. And then if, if the two spaces open up, that it'll be quite a deep uh, cavernous um, 
space are almost similar to maybe what the carriage works are, are like yeah. or the powerhouse. Or the Merlin maybe. Yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. 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 So we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. It is interesting mm. to have like a big space mm. change. It's kind of like what's happening to Brisbane in relation to this space. Uh, what does that mean for the storytelling in the city? Absolutely. And how does that then shape the next generation? You know, they're going to be, I watch the the students who are involved with the company come into here and they take this as, as their sort of first theatre space mm. and you go, oh, mm. that's interesting. Yeah, but yeah. But that's what you're looking at as kind of going, this is where I first came to see stories. Mm. Mm. Um, so it'll true. be interesting again. And again, in the scheme of Australia, there are not that many new theatre spaces. That's right. We pulled down an awful lot of them. Yeah. So yeah. we lost a lot of our big prosceniums. But insofar as our new spaces, it's, it's, quite, an, it's quite an event that mm. has an impact then on the designers of the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it is. And it's, it's, it's interesting. Well, I mean, I, was, I keep going, well, we keep going back to Griffin, but it's, Griffin is such a particular space with all its, like, eccentricities and stuff. I mean, all theatres tend to have have their They all have their eccentricities. And it doesn't matter how perfectly you think you build a space, there are always problems with it where you kind of go, I I suppose that's the architects just kind of going, oh, yeah, missed that. (laughs) You (laughs) know, they must... The difference between us looking at our work and kind of going, oh, yeah, I missed that, is that ours is only there for a few weeks. Well, yeah. Theirs is there for a generation. (laughs) You know, they're kind of going, you know, there was was one infamous space in Sydney that was built and then they realised that they'd only put a standard-sized door onto the stage so all of the sets couldn't come through it. So they actually have to bring the sets through the auditorium to get them on the stage. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Really practical. terrible, really practical. (laughs) So, yeah, I actually have a great um, theory about architecture and theatre space, about how they just don't talk to us enough about what we need. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come back to you with all of the interior design. Thing. <laughs> oh gosh, it's all, it's all on me now. No. Yeah, all on you. I, I want your I, I want your secret critique of Wharf One when it opens, or the Super Wharf when it opens. Super, Super Wharf. Wharf. Yeah. Um, how many plays have you actually designed? Um, I think it's just over forty now. Yeah, right. Because the, the interesting thing longer. about design is that you can like it depends on how how hard you're able to work in a particular year. And you have been known to kind of push yourself to the limit. What's the most number that you've actually done in the year and would you ever do it again? I think it was seven and that was too much. Too much, yeah. It is interesting, <laughs> That's my isn't limit. <laughs> isn't that funny thing though sometimes, you know, you like that funny freelance space, mm-hmm. especially when you're growing a practice and establishing. Absolutely. It's scary to say no, isn't it? You don't want to say no. Because you kind of go, well, if I say no now, will that person ever Absolutely. come back to me? Exactly. It, do I love this place so much it's worth jamming it in? Sometimes okay. I, what I've found, I got stu- I've been stuck in a couple of years, which have been quite bad, but that's also beca- because works have come back. That's it. It seemed fine and then actually... Oh, the company says, oh, we're going to do that one again. again. It's going to go on tour. Can you just, and suddenly you, you, your manageable year turns very unmanageable in a couple of places. And people look at you and go, why did you do this? And you kind of go, it wasn't my fault. Yeah, I had nothing to do with this. <laughs> at the time I was free, I said yes to these potential um, offers of shows. And then all of a sudden a remount comes in, you know, a show that's about to go on tour and needs some attention because, you know, some um, some of the actors have been recast, or there needs to be some re-rehearsal time, or it's we're building, you know, we're altering the set a bit, or we're, you know, and so that's that's time and attention that you need to also have to spend on it, that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then that that just sort of spins everything out of orbit, really. But you know, it's 
Yeah, but try. Never, never again seven. Never again, <laughs> never seven. again seven. How many, how many, how many has your uh, been? Um, this conversation always gets skewed because there was, in my first year out of NIDA, I had a, th- a thought to myself, say yes to everything. Mm. You don't know enough to say no to anything, Yeah, really. totally. And I ended up doing 14 shows. 14 shows? I did shows? back-to-back techs. Um, I realised that's bad. That's just not possible. It was. It was. Well, I kind of had to pay rent. So yeah. some, of them, some of them were actually work like paid shows so I had to do those and then the other ones were things that I really wanted, wanted to, to do and yeah. all of that thing and yeah I did 14 shows in that year and that was nuts I kind of even I have to go back from to, uh, I went back a few years ago and figured out did I really do that and I actually really did and it was stupid but I learned an enormous amount yeah, yeah. in that year and the things that I got to look at all of it and I kind of go oh, I wouldn't have not done that in retrospect but yeah, no, I think seven was the biggest and that was a couple of years ago and that was not great. I did end up weeping a couple yeah. of times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not great. Um, it's and not that glamorous. No, it's really, like there's, that, there's a joke, you know, there's, some, there's a point where you find yourself on your hands and knees scraping something off the floor because there's no one else to do it and you need it done and you kind of get, it's the glamour, that's what keeps you going, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and then magically somehow you put, put something on for opening night and you're standing there in the foyer about to drop dead of exhaustion and everybody's going, you must be so excited. And you're like, like yeah. Because yeah. I'm about to go do another show, another show. tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I've kind of got, yeah, you know, I can only really have a half a glass of champagne because I have still go home and to work on the model for tomorrow's presentation yeah yeah and I find that that a lot with with designers especially in Australia is that there is a lot of overlapping and there's a lot of jamming things in with schedule Mm. and that sort of thing Mm. what is it like to actually have you got to the point where you say no to work I have I have I think because I've, I've and this is only recently I've just started to learn my boundaries as far as what I can hold on to mentally and be able to um, give everything to a job, like fully commit to a job because I don't want to do something half-assed. So when I say yes to something, I I want to do it it with everything I have. And the more I say yes to and the more overlaps that there there would be, it just means that my attention just gets diluted and it's just, that's just not worth that's not worth doing, um, and it, and it, then the work needs the work should then needs to be spread out to other designers within the industry, like people who aren't don't have the work. They need to have those jobs. Happy to pass that on. But it's still <laughs> it's still a little bit petrifying saying no, isn't it? I actually kind of. I only said, said actually no last year for the first time to players that were sent to me, and I kind of went that's big. No, actually, and there were reasons for not doing it, and and I'm not unhappy, but I was still petrified. Yeah. <laughs> It's think, hard. Oh, will they still come back to me? Well, it's hard. You always, yeah, you think, you think, oh, well, that's it. I've, you know, I've done my dash. Burnt I that bridge. Burnt that yeah. bridge. They're, they're not going to ask me back. So it's really, it's strange to get to the point of trusting the fact that you will have work. Absolutely. It's not a natural freelance space, is no, it, to actually no. think you'll keep working? Gosh, no. Initially, the first few shows that I did, like the paid, like main stage things that I did, I must have also been the exhaustion talking maybe, but I was also like, well, I'll never be working here again. That, that's... STC, that's done. Like the first show I did there, I was like, in the forum, I'm like, well, enjoy this. This is the opening night and this isn't going to happen again. <laughs> I don't know why. I just thought it was complete fluff or I just it did a terrible job. But maybe that's just me just picking my stuff apart. But I'm just yeah, like... I do the same thing. I might, yeah. I might not come back here. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is funny though, isn't it? Like, what it? like how long it takes before you actually start going, oh, I think I actually do this. 
as a child. Yeah, owning it. Owning it. Yeah. Yeah. It's taken a while. Yeah. And just to to say what you do to someone, to say what you like, what you what your job is, like what you now, do for for work. And I've got a question. As a in that thing of working in the theatre, when you talk to people and you say I'm a, I'm a designer, what what is the response that you find? How do people respond? There, some people automatically go to, oh well, I saw I saw Jersey Boys the other week and that was wonderful. Thinking that that's what I do, and I'm like, well that's their experience of what theatre is and that's yeah. like sure that's big commercial theatre but that's not necessarily the theatre that I that I've been working in or that I do so I kind of you know it's I kind of like that. it's kind of like that but yeah. I explain it to them in that you know Queensland Theatre or Sydney Theatre Company or you know and these are places that some people might not have ever heard of you know so it's it's a it's, it's a conversation about that sort of thing another reaction is usually um oh Wow, wonderful. That's so exciting and creative and, you know, glamorous and, you know, oh, you know, just if, you, if you're shopping for a show, for example, you're buying costumes for characters and that sort of thing and you're buying maybe some quite weird things and, you know, you go up to the counter and, oh, is this all for you? Is this, no, 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 it's my, what I do for work, what I do for a job. Oh, what do you do? Um, I'm a designer for theatre, set and costume designer. Oh wow, that sounds amazing! Like people, it's it's a bit it's and a little bit mystifying. At like nine thirty in the morning, you just raced in because the sh- the shop is open. You've got to get into rehearsal by ten. And I'm like, that's the yeah, yeah, yeah. Got to go. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> so sometimes I then just skip the. Um, is this for you? And I'm like, yeah, yes. it's for me. I'm a freak. <laughs> I'm a freak, and it's all for me. Twenty yep. pairs of men's undies. Yeah, yep. that's for me. That's for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so wish list. What do you want to do? Oh, my gosh. That's so difficult. I feel like, weirdly, I kind of want to do a musical. I've never done a musical. I feel like, yeah, I feel like there's a musical in me. I'd want to try. I want to give that a go. I know what you mean. It is exciting, that scale, the challenge of a musical. It's kind of, especially here in Australia, we do the same, we do this, think of the scale of the music musicals squashed in to the same rehearsal process for a play. There's no time. That's insane. It's insane because there's the play that sits under the musical, but then there's all the music as well and all the time. So there's like this much time to work on everything and you've got to fit in your fittings. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, <laughs> it's n- it's maybe not. nuts. No, it's great, but you kind of go, there's one thing harder than a new Australian play, it's a musical. And there's one thing harder than everything, it's a new Australian musical. Mm. because you've got all the problems of the new in that, you know, you don't know how many top hats you're going to need. It's, you, know, totally. you know in Chorus Line how many you're going to need, totally. but, you know, a new Australian musical, you have no idea. Uh, so you've got to do an extraordinary amount of work in the same amount of time, mm. and you mm. kind of feel like it takes a while to get to the point where you think you could pull it off. Yeah. Yeah. And I reckon you could so pull it off. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. It's a challenge, and it is that funny thing of kind of starting to realise what you haven't done. Mm. Mm. You kind of go, I wonder what that would be like. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I start to think about that sort of thing. How about you? Anything? Oh, yeah, definitely musical. Yeah. I got to do one, I got, but it was a revival of Darlinghurst Nights and it was at the Hayes and it was kind of like this beautiful introduction to what that was. And I had two of the most extraordinary musical creators in Max Lambert and John O'Connell. Mm. I was working with them and they've done the biggest ones, yeah. you know, yeah. like King Kong to the haze you know and it was it was kind of extraordinary I felt like I had these incredible creators taking me by the hand and introducing me to 
the world of musical and what it could be. And that was kind of the perfect beginning. And I kind of, I'm a little bit kind of, you know, maybe I won't ever do another one because that was so lovely. Yeah, you don't want to um, kind of tarnish and, and that And for them experience. both to go from the biggest of the musicals, you know, from Baz Luhrmann, essentially, back to the, the core principles of musical, you know, um, and working in a room with kind of nothing mm. except their creative ideas. I think that was kind of a bit nostalgic for them too to kind of go, you can bring it back to a zero point and bring extraordinary joy to an audience. Uh, you know, John O'Connell looked at me and he said, well, we could have a time step. And I was like, yeah, great. No idea what a time step was. Um, and I was like, so about two hours later, I came back to him and said, so what is a time step? And he just looked at me and went, with a beautiful, gentle roll of the eyes. But it was really lovely. And that, that language that is a musical, because I do think they're an extraordinary form. And they are, they are. Yeah. And it's that exchange of the music and the drama and it's like that, that kind of puzzle of sort mm. of that coming together is something that I haven't mm. really experienced in the, the more yeah. sort of theatre that of I do. Of course, my, my one great love, of course, is high-end action films. <laughs> and I don't think I'll ever get to make one. I think, you know, you realise at a point in your career that you haven't got time to acquire all the skill that you would need to pull off the thing that, you know, it's like, the, it's like going, there's a point in your life where you realise you're probably not going to be an astronaut. Because sure. <laughs> yeah, the training yeah. and all of that sort of yeah, stuff, and you go, totally. oh, it's probably it's pretty, a bit late. And it's pretty specialised. Yeah, it's pretty specialised. Mm. And I look at high-end action films mm. and I go, it's pretty specialised work. Mm. And I, think I've, I, I don't think I've got enough time to acquire all of the experience. But then I look at, you know, Mission Impossible 3 and I kind of go, he hadn't done a, he hadn't directed a, an action film. Admittedly, he's done some pretty cool other visual things in the film world. So, like, it's not out of nowhere, but... Never say never, Lee. Never say never. Never, never say, say never. never. Because I love things that explode. I love explosions. <laughs> and for me, not being out... Like, we can't afford to do that on the stage very often. Yeah. Right? That, that cost of that. If that true. were in the script as you're reading through, you're yeah. like, well, there's half my budget, right? Uh, well, how to, are we going to do that for no how money? How are we going to do that for no money? I, got, I mean, I got to do that with Gloria. That's one of the things I really loved doing on Gloria was all the gun acting in that. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was awesome to, you know, that blow out the back of Lisa McCune's head onto oh the God. wall so that there's splatter. I got to do that and that was so much fun. It was one of the reasons <laughs> I, I said yes to that was because I knew, I, you know, there are things you can do in a big company, right? Yeah, you yeah. Got the time, and we started from the very beginning. That was the beginning, a year ahead, the design process was like, okay, how do we solve yeah. this? And yeah. that will determine everything else we do. That's it. You know. that's, yeah, that's, so, yes. it's a different, yeah, it's a different I, So thing. I am constantly striving to bring an action film onto the stage. Actually, there is a play that I do want to do. I want to do Gladiator 2. Gladiator 2? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a script. It's a film script written by Nick Cave. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And you're, you're joking. No, I'm not. I'm not. I read about it and I thought, oh, this is a joke. And then I found the script. And it's kind of an extraordinary idea. And I think there's a way to do it on stage. So that's my, that's on my wish list of impossible things. Amazing. Yeah. So this is me pitching it to you. We're going to do Gladiator <laughs> 2. I'm fairly sure we're going to do it in here, in the Bill Brown. Say, do we need a Coliseum or no, something? No, 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 no. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I'm going to send you this script. It's a long way off. I'm not saying that this is on stage at Queensland Theatre next year. But I reckon I, I, I and I think Russell Crowe should be in it. <laughs> because he hasn't done theatre, right? I don't know. Yeah, yeah probably not. And, but, but he's got one of the great voices on the planet. Mm, mm. And I just go, I want that in a theatre space and I want audiences to actually experience that. So anyway, this is my pitch to you. 
Are there going to be like real like lions and animals and sort of stuff? No, in the I don't arena? think there'll be real lions because okay. I think that would be mean, and I think the politics after Tiger, the Tiger Man series. Oh, oh Tiger yeah. King. Tiger King. Thank you. I, can't I haven't watch watched it. it. I haven't I can't watched it, watch but it. the politics of you know animals on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Although there was a um, a designer I know was was in London had house seats to national production of The Winter's Tale was sitting in the house seats. You know, often when you're Travelling over, well, I actually, I say, you know, when you're travelling overseas, I actually haven't travelled overseas very much, so I haven't actually seen a lot of work from overseas. I'm just looking at pictures. But he was sitting there in the house seats and everybody left at interval and it was uh, Winter's Tale and so they just had the bear moment, you know. And the, the man right next to him didn't move either. And uh, suddenly, you know, the space is empty except for these two guys sitting there and so he sort of thought, I should just say something. He said, you know what's really funny? You know, we spend all of this time in the theatre now with Shakespeare looking at these you know, the bear and, you know, in Shakespeare's time it was probably just a sheet and someone kind of going, ah, and a bit of shadow. And this Englishman looked at him and said, in Shakespeare's time they just would have had a bear. <laughs> and he realised he was talking to Tom Stoppard. Oh, my God. And, of course, it was one of those revelation moments where you kind of go the globe. Of course, the bear pit was just, you know, just down the road. They would have yeah. gone and got a bear and the bear would have walked on stage on a chain and there you go. And we, you will spend your whole life, your winter's tale, trying to figure out how to do the bear, Right. Different times, different possibilities, but but there will be challenges with Gladiator too. I'm sure. And I'm not I'm kidding sure about are. it. I say these things, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. No, you don't, do you? No. It's always a joke, like a couple of years before, yeah, before it actually saying, becomes a reality. I'm coming, I'm coming back to you. Consider yourself forewarned. I'm getting in early. So when, you know, the, when the big music, like if it's sitting anywhere near the big musical, just let me know so we can move it totally. away so you've got enough time to think about it. <laughs> totally. But I, I'm going to dig out that script tonight and send it to you. Please and, do. You know, <laughs> Russell Crowe, if you're listening, you're definitely, definitely on my call. Like, I'm going to find your phone number and you will be on my call it's, list. It'll probably take me about six months of nervousness before I'll pick up the phone and say, <laughs> but I think it. I think it should happen. Well, it's an extraordinary. It's an extraordinary. It's, 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 it's got to be seen. Well, it's a be... new Australian play, Nick Cave. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I, I just go. There is an extraordinary vision of what warfare is inside that work mm. that I cannot wait to bring to the stage. I don't have the rights yet. I'll get them. Wow. Yeah, that is exciting. Actually, makes See? me excited about it. Yeah. That's, well, that's my job <laughs> is to excite you so that you look at the impossible and pull the impossible out of thin air and build it. Right? Here we go. Yeah, yeah. So there we go. That that seems like probably a good place to end. That thing of what you do is make the impossible happen out of thin air. Yeah, we try. You yeah, you do. You try to. We all do. <laughs> well. Having having spent part of my lifetime working with you, I am looking forward to the next reach of lifetime. Likewise, Lee. Cool. Thank you, Renee. <laughs> thank it's you. It's actually a really lovely conversation. Thanks for having me. Cool. <laughs> and thank you all for joining us. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this quality time as much as I have. Yes, this is obviously just a really sneaky excuse on my part to, to actually sit with people I love and talk about the world that I love and hopefully inspire people to either come and see the plays or to consider the possibility of a life in the theatre. So if you are you know, 16, 17 and listening to this and you've got a particular, if you're drawn towards the, the I suppose, the, the art world and you wonder what life there could be, possibly think about theatre design, uh, costume and stage and the art of making the impossible happen out of nothing in an imaginary world. Thanks so much for listening to Quality Time. Please rate and review it and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter at QLD Theatre. 
You can visit our website, queenslandtheatre.com.au, to sign up to our e-news and learn more about the stories we'll be sharing next. We hope to see you at the theatre again soon. Bye! Thank you.